please grab your Bible or your app or a Bible that's available to you in the seat backs in front of you. You will be helped to have your Bible open just to make sure you keep me in line. But uh, we are in Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. So if you turn in your Bibles to the New Testament book of Luke, that's where we're going to be today. And we're going to read verses 12 through 26. Luke 5, 12 through 26. And once you're there, would you stand with me as a way of honoring the reading of God's word? Luke 5. I'm going to read verses 12 through 26. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But now even more the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. On one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at your word, to see the miracle behind these miracles, to see the miracle that has changed many of us. Lord, this morning we want to be introduced to something anew. We want to be introduced to something we've forgotten. Lord, we want to have your word penetrate into our hearts and our minds. So Lord, do that this morning. I pray for any here who don't know you. They don't know this miracle behind the miracle. They don't know the forgiveness of sins. They are stuck in their sins. Lord, I pray that this morning you might rescue them. We sang that this morning, that you alone can rescue. We have no, um, no delusions that we can save anybody by our eloquence or by our humor or by our logic. Lord, we need you because you alone can rescue. You rescued us and we pray that you'd rescue others this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Almost 500 years ago, 
in the town of Wittenberg, Germany, a monk-turned-priest nailed 95 theses to the church door. Um, It was not a a very special event. That was just the bulletin board, the church door. Don't get any ideas. But that was the bulletin board of the time. And a monk named Martin Luther had had enough of some of the abuses that he saw going on in the Roman Catholic Church. And so he posted his theses for disputation. This was um, an academic thing. Um, And yet somehow somebody got a hold of those 95 theses, and with a new invention called the printing press, copied them from the academic Latin into the vernacular German. And boom. All over Germany and all over Europe. In fact, it would not be saying too much to say the world was never the same. Martin Luther was uh, a man who was training to become a lawyer, but um, changed to uh, going to seminary to become an Augustinian monk, and later on, a priest, but Martin Luther was one of those who maybe some of you are like him, who had a, an extra sensitive conscience. He was um, never sure, as basically no um, Christians or Roman Catholics at the time were, of his salvation. In fact, he was so afraid of God that he had no assurance that he was actually in God's good graces. And so, I read, by the way, from the book, The Unquenchable Flame, which is a fantastic introduction to the Reformation, which we have in our church library. It says this, Driven to confession, he would exhaust his confessors, taking up to six hours at a time to catalog his most recent sins. In the process, missing chapel, and so adding more prayers to his to-do list, many of which he would later confess again. Terror would frequently overwhelm this priest, and it's, uh, we don't know if it's a true story or a legend, but the legend goes that Martin Luther would speak openly to Satan because he felt afflicted by the devil, and that there's one place you can go in Wittenberg where he apparently threw an inkwell across the room at Satan, and it splattered all over the wall. That indicates someone who is stressed, distressed, in agony, He would fight, duke it out almost physically with the devil and then also with God in his rooms. His mentor pleaded with him to trust in God and not to need to confess for so long. But Martin Luther did something strange. Even strange for a priest at the time. He began to read the Bible. And that sounds very odd, but uh, monks and priests rarely ever read the scriptures and they certainly did not read them. In their own language, they read them in Latin. Martin Luther began to read the Bible, and he began to read the book of Romans. And as he was doing this, uh, the Pope in Rome had begun to need more funds to build a basilica in um, the Vatican. And so um, what had become a, a normal part of Roman Catholic theology now became marketing and theology put together And people went all over the empire to sell indulgences. To say, you might be able to pay towards, and your payment would be a good work, a good deed, towards helping the Roman Catholic Church and getting a loved one out of purgatory. Actually, in the town of Wittenberg, where Martin Luther lived, um, the ruler of the area 
had in the castle church nine aisles proudly displaying more than 19,000 supposed relics. There you could see a wisp of straw from Christ's crib, a strand of his beard, a nail from the cross, a piece of bread from the Last Supper, a twig from Moses' burning bush, a few of Mary's hairs and some bits of her clothing, as well as innumerable teeth and bones from celebrated saints. So if you came on pilgrimage to Wittenberg and spent enough time praying, walking down the nine aisles of these relics, each indulgence was worth a hundred days out of purgatory. So you might get, if you took the time, 1,900,000 days out of purgatory. Now that's, this sounds absurd and just silly. And yet it had European Roman Catholics in the grip of guilt and works righteousness. And Luther started to read the Bible and saw this did not match up with what he saw in the Bible. And so as he struggled, listen to what he wrote afterwards about what he learned. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God and said, as if indeed it is enough that miserable sinners, eternally lost to original sin, are crushed by every kind of calamity, by the law of the Decalogue, without having God add pain to pain by the gospel, and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. Thus I rage with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat impertinently upon Paul at that place, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words of Romans 1, 17. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed, as it is written, He who through faith is righteous shall live. There, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous live by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, He who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. He began to see that his works were not meant to placate God's wrath, but that righteousness was a gift from God. In fact, he would go on to teach it like this. Righteousness righteousness is not something to be achieved. Righteousness is something to be received. And once he understood that he could receive the righteousness of Jesus... He called it the great exchange. That while on the cross, Jesus dies absorbing the wrath of God meant for us. And that he gets all of our sin placed on him and we get all of his righteousness placed upon us. So the the point of this is understanding the forgiveness of sins. Have your sins been forgiven? Martin Luther could not know that for sure. He couldn't know that. And most of... Europe could not know that for sure. Can you imagine taking your vacation time to go to a holy site to pray as hard as you could in front of a purported tooth of John the Baptist, hoping for time out of purgatory so someday you might get to heaven? That is not a thing of the past, folks. Pope Francis has issued indulgences. They are still around. This 
is a very important issue. Do you know you're forgiven? Do you hope you're forgiven? Do you think you're forgiven? Can you know you're forgiven? This is a huge, huge issue. And it is an issue that we see in our text today as Jesus heals two different people. So if you could take a look uh, at your notes, point number one as we go back to Luke chapter 5. Point number one in your notes is Jesus compassionately and willingly heals. Notice I put that in the present tense. It is not just a description of the story. It is the action of our Lord Jesus to this very day. Jesus compassionately and willingly heals. Look at verse 12 of Luke chapter 5. We're not given the specific context, but in one of the cities that Jesus has been preaching through, as we've read and studied the last several weeks, there was a man who came to him full of leprosy. Uh, Depending on your version, it might say covered with leprosy, full of leprosy. Again, Luke is a doctor. This seems to be just a a little medical diagnosis. This man did not have um, a, a mere skin issue. His body was full of leprosy. Uh, if, if you've studied leprosy or read about leprosy, nowadays we call it Hansen's disease. Um, and it is a, a horrible thing. Um, praise the Lord, it's been wiped out in most of the world, uh, often through Christian doctors. Um, but leprosy in the Bible does not necessarily just talk about Hansen's disease. Leprosy in the Bible refers to a wide range of skin diseases. And this is a little bit hard, as I was even studying this week, it's just a little bit hard to, to kind of get a hold of, just because we have... We have lotions and dermatologists and all kinds of things so readily available to us. I was um, in the men's bathroom this morning washing my hands, looking at, reading the back of the uh, lotion that's right. Yeah, we do have lotion in the men's bathroom. Um, and it gives you, I forget the word, it was like, it was like ridiculous. You know, it's at the back of it, it's like velvety skin, and, which every man wants, velvety skin. Um, but I mean, it's just right there in our bathroom, right? And you, how many of you ladies in your purse have some, have some lotion real quick to apply to your skin? Um, We have, um, for worse skin issues, um, we have all kinds of medicines that can be prescribed to you. This is not the case in the first century. In fact, if you want to get kind of an idea of what's going on with um, leprosy, during halftime of one of the games this afternoon, you can read Leviticus 13 and 14. Um, It might be more exciting than the game. Um, It is an exciting two chapters to read. super interesting and shows you the wide range of what was going on when the Bible uses the term leprosy. So this man came to him. We don't know what he had. Um, some people think it might have actually been Hansen's disease, in which case you begin to lose uh, the nerve endings in your body and you begin to hurt yourself and not notice um, the, the pain, you not, not notice the wound. And so sometimes you can begin to lose pieces of appendages, your nose, your ears, your fingers, your toes, and eventually, of course, will kill you. Uh, some other skin ailments may have been psoriasis. It may have been lupus. Um, Some say it may have been some kind of ringworm. Whatever the actual diagnosis, this man has leprosy and cannot come near civilized society. Now listen, just really clear, this is not mean, okay? The Old Testament law is not mean to lepers. It is attempting to keep the community from dying out because of how contagious these diseases were. However, for the leper, the leper had to live outside of the community, often in caves, and often the only people he ever saw, interacted with, or touched were other lepers. You can imagine that even with the best of intentions, banishing people to live outside of the normal way that society worked was just too difficult to overcome that barrier. 
And so the people who were lepers in the first century, uh, historian Josephus called the leper no different from a walking corpse. Now this leper comes to Jesus in verse 13 and falls on his face and begged him. Hold on a second. He's talking to somebody in the town. This is a huge risk. First of all, he's not allowed to do this. Second of all, he could get in big time trouble for this. And third, he might get other people sick. And yet he has the faith, the boldness to come into town, to fall on his face before Jesus and beg him. And I want you to notice his amazing words. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Not can you make me clean. You can make me clean. Let's switch it up. If you will. This man had heard, seen about Jesus, and so he came to him in faith. He said, you can make me clean. The issue is not whether or not you can. The issue is whether or not you will. What, what great faith this man had. What boldness he had to come before Jesus like this. Verse 13, some of the most amazing words. Jesus stretched out his hand. Stretched out his hand. And what did he do? He touched him. He touched the leper. He touched the contagious one. Again, if you go back and read Leviticus 13 and 14, there are just all kinds of prescriptions for why this is not supposed to happen. And yet Jesus stretches out his hand and touched him. At the very least, Leviticus says Jesus is unclean and needs to go through ritual washings. At the very least, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. The best words this man had ever heard in his life. And immediately, the leprosy left him. I have no idea what that looked like. Um, but I'm just imagining Hollywood special effects, right? And his face, whatever, wherever the leprosy was, just gone. Does it mean the skin got renewed in that place? Maybe. Jesus healed the man. Immediately, the leprosy left him. Now, how do we even think about this? And so, I, I just thought, um, as I was studying this this week, um, uh, a, a lady from the community who was homeless came in and needed some food and came in and sat in my office. Um, my office did not smell well, good after that. Um, and I was uncomfortable. Anybody been there with a the homeless person? Very uncomfortable. That's not what we're talking about here. Does anybody remember back in the 80s and 90s when we found out about HIV and AIDS? And how things went in our culture. Remember Magic Johnson retiring from the NBA? Um, some of his uh, colleagues didn't, did not want to play if he was going to play because of the possibility that we, of, of getting HIV. Um, I remember um, someone in my life who had HIV and was coming to a family gathering and said they had an open wound. Um, what? Right? And so our, I think this is the only thing I can compare it to is, is the HIV and AIDS epidemic um, is just this fear of what if I get it? This is going to kill me if I get it. What if I get it? I can't get it. That person can't come. You, you can't, you're not welcome. You can't come. Sorry. This is, this is similar to that. Maybe you'd show up and stay on the other side of the room. Or maybe there'd be a screen door in between. 
Or maybe you would put your hands behind your back or your hands in your pockets. Jesus, though, touches this leper. He reaches out his hand and he touches this man. Now listen, he's not ritually unclean. You notice this? Jesus doesn't have to go wash off. The man is cleansed. The opposite happens. The uncleanness traveled, right? It it spread. It was contagious. Jesus counteracts that. Jesus makes the unclean man clean again. And by the way, did you also notice that it's not called a healing? The man is not asked to be healed. He asked to be made clean. He feels this. He's made clean. He's cleansed. He's washed. He's made new. Now, the beautiful faith that is mentioned here, um, it should be an encouragement to us to come to the Lord in faith. But I wonder, possibly, for anyone in this room, if it might be a discouragement. Because maybe you have come to Jesus and fallen on your face and said, if you will, you can make me clean. And he said, I won't. Because, let's be honest, often that is the answer that we get, right? Lord, heal that person. Heal me. You can. And yet the, the, the answer in some cases is, no. No, I'm not going to heal you. Many of you have been touched and um, instructed and helped by the ministry of Nabil Qureshi, who wrote um, Seeking Allah and Finding Jesus. Uh, Nabil Qureshi was a Muslim and was converted to Christ um, a little more than a decade ago. has written three fantastic books that also are in our church library and became an apologist for Christianity. He was a year older than I am, and a few weeks ago he went to be with the Lord because the cancer that was in his stomach ate out his insides. He pleaded with God. He had um, all kinds of updates on YouTube, um, going to healing ministries, really seeking God in the scriptures. And God said, Nabil, I won't heal you. He said, I won't. The, the, the key here is that we come to Jesus and say, in faith, you can. You can. This man did not doubt. He had faith. This is exactly what we say when we say, if it's your will, Lord, please heal that person if it's your will. And sometimes people get derided for not having enough faith. Oh, well, don't, don't, put, don't, don't, don't put that on the end of it, if it's your will. Well, first of all, that would be really silly of us not to pray like Jesus. Okay? Not my will, but yours be done. Surrendering our will. But on the other hand, it's actually for us an understanding of what full healing and salvation is looks like now and will look like in eternity. The leper knows that the issue is if Jesus wills. Do we know if that's the issue? The issue is if Jesus wills. Jesus can heal. He demonstrates this over and over and over again. When we come into the new heavens and the new earth as believers in Jesus, this is what 1 John 3, 2 says. Beloved, we are God's children now, And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. So whether it's today, or next week, or in 500 years, someday we will be healed. We will be healed fully. There will be renewal of our body 
and our soul. This is the great promise of the gospel. It's not just to be floating in the clouds someday like little invisible cupids strumming on a harp. The promise is that we get a new, better body. I'm sorry to tell you this. If you haven't figured this out yet, some of you young people may not have. This thing's falling apart. It does not work as well as you want it to. We need a new one. (laughs) I don't want to be rescued from this body. I want a better one. Jesus had a body, right? And he died. And he rose again, not to some weird spiritual floating around like a ghost, but he rose again with a brand new body, one that will not decay and that won't fall apart. I love the, the, the ministry of Jesus after his resurrection. Apparently he can get through locked doors and walls, but he also makes breakfast on the shore with some fish. He has a body that eats food, enjoys food, and yet can do some amazing, miraculous things. 1 John 3, 2 says, we'll be like him when we see him as he is. So take heart. If Jesus has said to you, it's not the time to heal. Because your healing has already begun when you put your faith in Jesus, and it will be completed in the new heavens and the new earth. Another thing that we learn here is that Jesus is approachable. I mean, this leper knew that he could go up to Jesus, that Jesus was somehow approachable. Are we approachable people? There's just a thought. Are we approachable? Is there something about our demeanor, our reputation, our Christianity even, God forbid, that keeps people away? Let's, let's, let's consider that. Think about it at work. Think about it in your neighborhood. Think about it at school. Are you an approachable person? Now listen, Christians are going to be labeled judgy. Okay? It's going to happen. Let's let it happen because we believe in the Bible and not let it happen because we're jerks. Right? I mean, I'm totally fine with being accused of being judgy because I believe in the Bible. I'm not fine. I shouldn't be fine with being called judgy because I'm just a mean guy. We need to be approachable as Jesus was. Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him. He touched this man. Can you imagine? That man might not have been touched in years. Not ha- Can you even imagine that? Some of you are sitting shoulder to You're touching right now. I mean, we've, shake, we've shaken hands and maybe even hugged this morning. This man may not have felt any human's touch in a long time. And Jesus reaches out and touches him. He engages with this outcast. He talks to him. That ought to define us as Christians. We ought to be approachable. We ought to be the kind of people that engage, not disengage. Now, verse 14, Jesus tells the man not to tell anybody and tells him to go show himself to the priest, which is Jesus is just following the prescriptions in the law in Leviticus 13 and 14. Jesus is a good Jew. Follow the law. You're healed of, you're healed of leprosy. Now, go. I, I, I couldn't find this in my research, but I don't see any other way. I think he had to go to Jerusalem to go to the priest. I, I thought maybe there might be a way to go to a priest in Galilee, but I couldn't find anything on, upon that. So what this looks like is he had to make a three, four-day trip down to Jerusalem, present himself to a priest, and then go through the rigmarole of the seven-day, eight-day examination period to make sure that the leprosy was gone. And he says, do that. Make an offering for cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. There's a question about what that means for a proof to them. Who's the them? And what's the proof? Um, Quite possibly, it's just merely the fact that he's proving he doesn't have leprosy anymore. 
um, to show the priest he doesn't have leprosy. The thought might be perhaps that they say, what, did you really have leprosy? I mean, we don't know. You live up in Galilee. No, I had leprosy. Well, how did it go away? Well, this guy named Jesus, he touched me and I'm healed. And so perhaps there, there's, some, there's some of that implied here. Whatever the case, Jesus tells this man to go examine himself. But verse 15, the, it didn't work, right, to tell. It didn't work to tell this man not to tell anybody because the, the, the report goes out more and more. More people are hearing, did you hear about this guy Jesus? Did you hear about this guy Jesus? He's going through the trade routes and through the fishermen and telling the other fishermen. And then these people are telling the Romans over here and everyone's beginning to hear about this Jesus and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. Yes, success! Big crowds. We're Americans. That means success, right? There's a lot of people. It must be good. It must be successful. Can you, I mean, can you just imagine, I was thinking about this, can you imagine today if we had to turn people away from church because we didn't have enough seats? That would be really hard to come away from that day and be like, wow, we're doing pretty good here. Look, there's no more empty seats. We're, we, God's blessing us. And there may very, that very well may be. But what does Jesus do? Add more services. We need to do more. What's he do in verse 16? <laughs> he withdraws to desolate places and prays. What? Well, the strategy is when success hits, man, you got to follow up on that success. We got to ramp up the marketing. We got to get the word out. We've got to make sure that we're, we got to ramp this thing up and get more and more and more people. And don't get me wrong. We want more and more people to meet Jesus and to become Christians. We want that. But I want you to notice that Jesus regularly goes. It says he would withdraw um, the Greek makes it clear that this is a practice of his, that, he, that he's doing this. This is, this is what he does. He regularly leaves. Can you imagine that? If, you ha- if people showed up at your house and all they need to do is say, hey, um, can you touch my cousin? He's got chicken pox. Okay, boom, you're healed. Okay, the people are never going to stop coming. Just never going to stop coming. Jesus withdraws and he prays. He reconnects in the busyness of life and the success of life, he connects with his father. And so point number two is the priority of prayer increases with popularity and pressure. Yes, there are four Ps in that. The priority of prayer increases with popularity and pressure. He gets away. He makes it a regular practice to get away. Now, I thought about this this week. (laughs) We live in um, one of the largest metropolitan areas in the world. Uh, my family went to Oak Glen yesterday to go pick apples. There's, there's a ton of apple orchards up there. But I, I was just thinking, there's probably like 20 million people within an hour's drive of that place. There's no way they can keep up with the demand. And it was, it was crowded. We waited an hour and, a, hour and a half in line to get apple cider donuts. They were good, Lorraine. Woo! Can you imagine just the crush of people? Where do you go to get away? We can't, I mean, it's so hard to to go anywhere to get away. Um, Jesus had all kinds of places. This is modern day Galilee. There's still places to get away. This is just one of the uh, wadis, uh, like a dry dry wash that goes into the Sea of Galilee. This is today. You can just walk around and get there. Oh, look, here's another place right outside of a city to go and be by yourself. Um, This is a view of where Jesus ministered. This is today's view. This is a desolate place. It's It's quiet. 
I thought about this this week while I was here in the office. And so I walked into the back parking lot to get to a desolate place that was quiet. It wasn't quiet. Um, we need to learn from Jesus to make it a regular practice to do something to do this. I think this probably in our culture more applies to turning things off and turning things off and leaving them than it does to necessarily have to drive an hour to get, to get somewhere where nobody else is. Now, if you can do that, fantastic. What's the point? The point is that Jesus, in the midst of success, in the midst of all of this pressure to perform, regularly leaves, gets away, so that he might have time to pray. Notice, this is one of the uh, commentators said, the end of this passage shows Jesus taking some time not to pamper himself, but instead to communicate more directly with his Father. The idea here is to increase his effectiveness in ministry by connecting with his Father. Or as the scholar Tim Ruggles said this week, as we studied this, he wasn't here for the fame. He wasn't here for the fame. He was here to minister. And because he was here to minister, he did what it took to minister effectively. And so I don't know what that means for us. I know what it means for me. It means I don't have to. I don't have to. I don't have to listen to a podcast every time I'm in the car. I want to listen to a podcast because I'm so behind. Some of you are like, what a weirdo. Yes, I know. My commute is if I hit all greens, it's three minutes. If I hit all reds and it's five o'clock, it might be six or seven minutes. That might be all the time that I have. I get home and there's a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, and uh, however old he is, two-month, two-month-old. <laughs> there it is. And a wife who's been dealing with them all day. I don't have, I don't have, excuse me. Um, hello, everybody. I'm home from work. I'm going to go to a desolate place and pray. <laughs> That's not going to happen. So perhaps I could turn off the radio, turn off the podcast, and maybe risk looking like an idiot because I'm talking in my car to nobody. Who cares? And talk to God. Sometimes, sometimes I do that. I do that not enough, but when I do it, I often go, what am I doing? Turn all this stuff off and just talk to God. So whatever that means for you, figure out a way to get to a desolate place. It might be a desolate place in your mind. It might be a desolate place in your house. Whatever it takes, get alone with God. How many of you need to pray more? You need to pray more? Okay. Maybe that's an action point for the day, right? Let's find ways to get alone with God. The leper is healed. The crowds are coming. Verse 17 moves us into the second healing story here. Number three, point number three in your notes, faith is worked out in tenacious trust. Faith is worked out in tenacious trust. I know faith and trust are basically synonyms. I did that on purpose to help us get another angle on the word. Um, when, when he's teaching, Jesus is in houses, he's in synagogues, he's out in, the, in a boat in the lake, he's up on a mountain, he's teaching everywhere. And in this section, we see that he's teaching um, in a house. We can look at the accounts in Matthew and Mark to kind of get some different um, angles on this, but Jesus is teaching, and we've got some new people that are attending his teachings now. We've got some guys who have heard about this hubbub of this new teacher, and they've traveled from far and wide to come hear him. We meet, for the first time in Luke's gospel, Pharisees and teachers of the law there in verse 17. Most of the time, the teachers of the law are called scribes. 
in English. Okay, and Pharisees are basically more similar to a, like a political party in Judaism. Um, the Pharisees, I don't know, I grew up um, in a Christian home and Pharisees are always the bad guys, right? And they always have like the, the really weird robes and they have the... Um, actually, the Pharisees were just lay people. They were guys that had jobs and they were lay people um, who were so committed to the law that every last moment was spent to emphasize faithfulness to the Mosaic law. They were separatists, so they were actually the conservatives in Judaism, these Pharisees were. And they had a lot of followers among the lay people, but the lay people wouldn't necessarily call themselves Pharisees um, because you had to be a pretty good person to kind of take that label of Pharisee. You had to be someone who emphasized faithfulness to the Mosaic law. These people had developed over time an intricate, overlapping system of how to apply the 613 laws in the Torah to all of life. All of life. Every last part of your life. Your kitchen, your bathroom, your parenting, your worship, your walking distances. All of these things were worked out by the Pharisees for a good Reason They wanted to follow God's law. But it is clear from the Gospels they had gone way, way too far. And they also had these scribes or teachers of the law who were basically like professional lawyers and their, their law that they studied was the Mosaic law. So these people are now sitting there hearing from Jesus because here's a new guy teaching. He's teaching with authority. They're trying to figure this guy out. Is this guy good for us or bad for us? Should we join him? Do we want to ask him to join the club? Teach him the secret handshake? Or do we want to reject this guy? What are we doing? So they're listening to Jesus. And they've come from every village. Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, from all over the place. The power of the Lord was with him to heal. Just a reminder that Jesus is healing as an agent of God. In Luke chapter 4, in Luke chapter 1, we've been told that Jesus came to preach, to teach, to heal, to set at liberty the captives, and to offer forgiveness of sins. This is what he is doing. So as he's teaching, the crowd is out the door. The crowd is piled. There's people trying to look in and see it. Trying to listen. Like, I want to hear Jesus. So people can't get close. And it's at this time that some men were bringing on a bed, verse 18, a man who was paralyzed. And they wanted to bring him and lay him before Jesus because they knew that Jesus could heal him. They had heard these things. Perhaps they'd seen or met other people who had. Maybe they met the man whose arm was all shriveled up and he came back and said, look what I can do. And they said, wow, we've got to get our paralyzed friend over to this guy. So they're carrying him on some kind of bed, a mat, a stretcher, something of that. But they can't get in the door. There's no way to get through. Excuse me, excuse, excuse me. Excuse. They're blocked. They can't get in. So these men give up and go home. No, they don't. (laughs) Some of you are like, what? No. (laughs) That's why you have your Bible out. Make sure I'm saying the right thing. These guys look around. And because they need to get their friend to Jesus, because they believe that he can heal them, they find a way to get up on the roof and let him down through the roof. That's That's a genius idea. Okay? Probably not one that everyone would have thought of. Now, um, I need to, to, to help us visualize this. Um, in June, when we were in Israel, Pastor Ron actually taught on this passage. He's actually really jealous that he doesn't get to preach this. Um, it's okay. You can repent. Um, but Pastor Ron got to teach on this inside a rebuilt house um, in Israel. 
and teach this story. Um, here are some pictures. Oh, well, let me back up. This is Capernaum, actually. Remember that a synagogue I showed you a few weeks ago where Jesus uh, is built on the top of Jesus' synagogue? It's, it's that white building back there. These are the houses in Capernaum. You see the, uh, the steps right here? It's really hard to tell. This is a house, and the walls, of course, would have been higher, and there would have been a roof. And these were outside steps to get onto the roof. Okay? The second story of an Israelite house was the roof. All right? If it's really stinking hot, you can't turn on the air conditioning, you go on the roof. Okay? And so the, the roof was um, a place that could hold people. They could hang out there. Um, but you needed to make it sturdy enough to do that. And so many of the uh, homes in this time were built like this with thatch and mud and clay where you'd use whatever materials you could, depending on where you lived. Um, so you used palm fronds, right? Or you could, if you lived near the Jordan River, you'd grab some really sturdy reeds and put them across the beams. This is actually the, the building that Ron taught in. Um, and you'd lay them across. And you could see some of the sticks sticking out here. And you'd lay some clay. Um, you'd mix together whatever materials you, materials you could to try to make it as safe and as waterproof as possible. You also needed to make it strong enough so that you could go up on the roof. Here's another one you can just see. So these men take their friend up on the roof, and it says that in verse 19, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. Um, Luke uses the word tiles, um, and it can refer, it can refer to, to actual square tiles. It can also just refer to the clay. Um, Mark seems to tell us in the Gospel of Mark that it's more of a thatched roof like this. Whatever the case, Luke might just be helping the Romans who were reading his Gospel. He's probably, like, if, if, he, if Luke would have written it to us, he would have written, they went to the house and removed the shingles and let the man through the roof. <laughs> okay? So that's, that's possibly what he's doing. Whatever the case, we do know that they also use some tiles sometimes. I mean, you've got to remember, there's no Home Depot. <laughs> Okay, so they're, they're doing the best they can with the supplies they can, with the savings that they can. Maybe an upgrade, maybe a, a home upgrade back then was from thatch to tiles. Maybe you just kind of thatched the roof and then put tiles where you could when you got a chance. Whatever the case, these men get up on the roof and start digging the roof up. It's not their house. You can't do that. That's not allowed. Whose house is this? We don't know. I don't, is he home while this is happening? Someone's digging through my roof. Whatever the case is, probably things falling down, reeds, palm fronds, branches, sticks, leaves, <laughs> in the middle of Jesus' teaching. I would not be happy if I were teaching the Bible and this was happening. Hey, look at me. Stop looking at the roof. What are you doing up there? <laughs> wow, that was an interesting noise. <laughs> the, <laughs> I'm hearing things. Okay. So they, they let this man through the roof, and, and again, the roof is not like this roof, okay? It's probably not even like yours at home. It's probably six, seven feet high, okay? And they begin to let the man down. Um, do, they, do, they, do they let him down and hope other people are going to grab him? Do they have ropes? They, they, they lay him somehow before Jesus. Teaching interrupted, paralyzed man on the mat before Jesus. I want you to notice the first half of verse 20. And when he saw, what? Their faith. Is their singular or plural? It is plural. Their faith. Whose faith is Jesus seeing? 
probably the men who are lowering their friend down. The men who dug up the roof, somebody else's roof, to let someone down. It very well may also apply to the man who's allowing his friends to lower him through a roof on a bed. That didn't seem very safe to me. Jesus saw their faith. Look at this. Their faith is not something they just sit at home, twiddle their thumbs and say, I have faith. In fact, they don't even say, they don't even say, well, our friend is paralyzed. We should just have more faith. They have faith and they go to Jesus. They do something. Listen, faith works. Okay? This is very, very important that we get this in the right order. Okay? Works do not save us. Okay? Works do not increase our faith. Okay, so that we can finally believe in Jesus. If we have faith in Jesus, we will work that out. Paul says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Listen, if I say I have, well, that's not a good idea. I was going to say the Raiders winning, but that's not good because I don't have much faith. (laughs) Okay, listen, basically, if you say you believe in something and you show no outward signs that that's actually a reality in your life, and then it's just words. It's just words. This, these men's faith led them to action. Just like the leper's faith led him to get close to Jesus. So they have this trust that Jesus can do something. Let's get there. Let's dig up somebody else's roof to get our friend to Jesus. It's very clear here that the, 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 the Bible's not teaching that someone else's faith can substitute for your own. It's not like the guy's faith... Um, the men that were luring him through, that their faith counted for the man. Um, But Jesus is recognizing their trust in his ability to heal. And he's recognizing it as a group, as a community. So, my faith can't make you believe. But my faith might influence you to believe. Correct? So, like, when I'm pleading for God to save my kids, I'm not saying... God saved my kids, and then acting like a devil in my house, right? hoping God saves them. Okay? But I am acknowledging I can't save my kids. But I'm going to do as much as I can. One of my favorite pastors says, I'm going to put as much kindling around my kids that when the fire comes, there's going to be a fire. When the Holy Spirit comes, I've already laid the kindling around that thing to get the flame moving. So the, the man on the mat, I believe, does have faith. And I believe his faith is included when Jesus says he, says he saw their faith, okay? Now, the last point today, point number four, is God's forgiveness of sins is the greatest miracle. God's forgiveness of sins is the greatest miracle. It's the miracle behind the miracles. One of the commentators I was reading this week said that the point of this miracle and many others is that the miracle is rarely the point. There's always something more miraculous hiding behind the miracle, Jesus is not a a circus show going around just to make money or to please some kind of weird complex that he has to help people. There's something more, there's something deeper going on here. And we know this because of the last part of this story. There's a man on the floor in front of Jesus who can't move. He's paralyzed. When he saw their faith, verse 20, he said... Man, your sins are forgiven you. What? Why did the men bring the man on the mat? 
I think we can assume that they wanted Jesus to heal the man's paralysis. Right? My friend is paralyzed. Let's take him to Jesus so Jesus can wave his wand and say, you're okay. What? No. We want him to heal. We, we know Jesus can heal. He can put his hand on him. We're going to speak a word and this man will be healed. And Jesus says, man, your sins are forgiven you. Thanks, but I can't move. Can you imagine if you were the man on the mat? I would be a little miffed. That's nice, Jesus. Thanks. Cool. But can, can I? I'd like to move. I've seen what you've done with these other people. Jesus says, man, your sins are forgiven you. And immediately we see that part of this is the first salvo against the Pharisees and the scribes. Because in verse 21, they begin to question and say, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now listen, Luke is not just recording what he's heard. He's writing a story. This question is on purpose. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Okay, it's rhetorical in their minds. But in the story, that's a great question. Can this person, this man who said this man's sins are forgiven, can he do that? Jesus, verse 22, perceived their thoughts. (laughs) That answers part of who this man is. Perceived their thoughts. Why do you question in your hearts? I got to imagine those guys are like, whoa, he just read my mind. This is getting weird. Okay. (laughs) Why do you question your hearts? And then Jesus gives them a little bit of a riddle. Which is easier to say, to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk? Well, in reality, they're, I mean, it's the same, right? Your sins are forgiven you. Rise and walk. They're, they're, They're similar there. Okay. However, watch what Jesus is doing. Okay, what is easier to say? Well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven you because there's no objective way to, to find that out, right? If I say, hey, I for, your, your sins are forgiven, there, there's no outward manifestation of that right then. However, if I say to the guy, get up and walk, and he gets up and walks, whoa! Okay, so it, it, it technically in Jesus' argument here, it's easier for him just to say, your sins are forgiven you. Because if he says get up and walk and the guy doesn't get up and walk, then pff, blow him off, right? I mean, Ready? Ready? Corvette! Corvette! Like, it's not working, right? It is not working. Immediately, you know I'm fraud. Jesus says, which is easier? Okay? To to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk. Verse 24. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to what? Forgive sins. This is what Jesus is doing. The miracle is to demonstrate his authority. We've already seen this. Jesus is authoritative. His words are authoritative. So Jesus is using the miracle to authenticate his authority. You can't say that kind of stuff. Hey, get up and walk. Whoa. Okay, maybe you can say that kind of stuff. You see the authentication? Now, Jesus is fulfilling Zechariah's song from chapter 1 that we studied a couple months ago, that this one was this, the coming one would give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Forgiveness is the word to wipe out, to blot out, to do away with, to cover. This is the miracle behind the miracles that a man sent by God can forgive sins. The Pharisees say, 
We know someone can forgive sins. Only God can do that. Now, this man is saying he can do what God can do. That's blasphemy. Take him outside the town and stone him. He has slandered the name of God. He has taken upon himself only something that God can do. He is a blasphemer. But Jesus, in the midst of this, I love this, this logical argument. You ever have a logical argument with somebody? Going back and forth, not getting anywhere? Well, Jesus, Jesus like diffuses the argument because then he heals a man. In the middle of the argument, right in the middle of the argument, they're having this conversation. But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed. He turns and looks at the man. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Now, here is the ultimate point, right? It, is it going to work? Can he do it? Not only does he do it, but verse 25 says, and immediately he rose up. The paralyzed man got up. The paralyzed man got up. He picked up his bed and he went home. Glorifying God. What has Jesus done? Jesus has, the, has said this. My words are powerful and I say I, can for, I forgive you. Your sins are forgiven. I can speak words that say, get up and walk, you're healed. And it happens. So what he's beginning to do is to say, I have authority from God. At the very least. If not, I am God. Okay, the question here is, who can forgive sins but God alone? Uh Uh-huh. Yep. Now, verse 26 is um, pretty clear. Amazement seized them. Yeah. (laughs) And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God, and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. That word in Greek, extraordinary, is paradoxa. It's a paradox. They They saw something that, doesn't, it shouldn't make sense. That, that's incredible. It's extraordinary. Who can do such a thing? Folks, Jesus can do such a thing. He offers forgiveness of sins. And so when we as Christians offer, we tell this story, we are not saying we can do it. We're saying we know who has done it in our own lives. And so we're offering you, there's forgiveness of sins. You're not trapped you're not stuck in them. You're not, you don't have to be condemned. God is providing a way for the forgiveness of your sins. That is good news. Some of you are trapped in your sins. You are enslaved. Some of you know it. Some of you don't. I'm here to tell you this morning that Jesus offers forgiveness of sins freedom from the consequences of your sins. Do you believe that? Some of you do, and some of you don't. This morning, I want you to consider this, that Jesus came not just to heal people. That's nice. But those, those people got healed, and then they grew old, and they died. So whoop-de-doo, they lived a few extra years. Jesus is not offering just healing. He is offering complete healing of your soul and your relationship to God Almighty. Now listen, that's the good news that we have. Hide it under a bushel. No! 
that's the message we have to tell others. So let's tell them this week that there is forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that we have been forgiven. And the only way that we can be forgiven is if you reach down and touch us. Because like the man full of leprosy, we are men and women full of sin. All that we've ever done has worked towards our death. We are those who have missed the mark. And what we need most desperately is to understand what Martin Luther understood 500 years ago, that it is not through pain indulgences, it is not through gritting our teeth and being better people, it is through receiving the gift of righteousness from Jesus Christ. So Lord, this morning I pray that for any who have not responded to you, that right now they would stop and ask the question, am I forgiven? And Lord, for some of the Christians in this room who are just wrestling over whether or not they know that they're forgiven, Lord, I pray this morning that they would address that with a wise Christian in their life, that they would ask for prayer, and Lord, that you would give them that assurance that when we confess our sins, you're faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So God, now do your work in us. Save, redeem, restore. Lord, do that. We want to see it and rejoice in it. Help us to spread that message. In Jesus' name, amen.